A new year brings a new beginning. For all my listeners that own a business, I want to tell you about FedEx Office. If you are just starting or have been running your company for generations, FedEx Office gives you the best way to print marketing materials, posters, signage, graphics, and so much more. With FedEx, creating, editing, saving, and ordering are fast and easy. We are teaming up with FedEx and Podgo to bring our listeners 30% off your next order of $100 or more at podgo.co slash FedEx. That's podgo.co slash FedEx for 30% off your next order. FedEx, the world on time. Health, parenting, finance, travel, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm Greg Rodersheimer, your host. Today's episode is a continuation of an episode we had a few months back about real estate investing. In that episode, we compared large companies that are in the space to smaller companies or even individual investors. And today we'll focus more on the individual investor if you're somebody that's interested in getting into this space. My guest is Amy Majuri. She's an expert real estate investor, published author, HGTV personality, national real estate coach, and motivational public speaker. In her best-selling book titled Networking with a Purpose, Amy brings the principle of successful networking to life through the stories, events, and ideas that have shaped her path to success personally and professionally. Amy and her husband, Sean, live in San Diego, California with their daughter, Emma. Amy, thanks so much for joining me. Do you want to kick us off by telling us what it was about your corporate job that was not satisfying and ultimately led you to your journey in real estate? Oh, well, thanks for having me. Excited to chat with you today. You know, it's crazy because my background is very traditional. You know, just like most people, I was, you know, raised to go to school, get good grades, um, go to college, get a job in corporate America that's secure and stable that I'll stay at until I retire. And that's all that was really ingrained in me. And so I was working my one and only job offer that I got out of undergrad for Dell Computers in Austin, Texas. And I still don't even know how I got that job. I was there for a total of 14 years, but about 12 years in, I just took a step back and said, what am I doing? I'm just here going through the motions for anyone who's seen office space. I felt like Milton. I was just, I don't even know. I had zero interest in climbing the corporate ladder and um, I had no motivation. And I just quickly realized that for me, the things I wanted to do and experience in life, I was not going to achieve by working a traditional nine to five. Um, there were so many things I wanted to do, such as traveling the world and um, various experiences and even giving back to others, helping my family financially as needed. And that wasn't going to happen on a salary in corporate America that was less than six figures. And so basically what happened is I was an HGTV junkie. I was addicted like most people to those home renovation shows. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to just flip a couple of properties on the side just to make some extra cash while I figure out what I really want to do. And I thought what I really wanted to do was get a corporate job with Nike in Portland, Oregon. So I've always been the type of person where I believe in working smarter and not harder. I want the fast track to success. Give me every proven system. That's a shortcut. I don't want to make mistakes. I don't want to figure it out on my own. So even as a side hustle slash hobby, you know, flipping one to two homes, I invested in coaching because I didn't know what I was doing. 
And it was crazy because just by working with my coach, my very first year, having no experience in real estate, my goal was just to flip a couple of properties while working my full-time job at Dell. I bought, renovated, and sold 10 properties in just one year and in real estate made one and a half times more than my salary at Dell. So that was really eye-opening for me. And then a lot of things happened after that. Before I ask my next question, shout out to Office Space. That's one of my favorite movies. And anybody that's already relating to your story about corporate America, if you've not seen that movie, I promise you, you will recognize a lot of the situations that come up in that movie. So excellent reference there. And I think a lot of people probably do relate to that corporate grind and can potentially feel like they're not getting ahead. But of course, there are other businesses that can be out there. You mentioned having a system, and that probably is something that is a deterrent for people in their own business. Something else that comes to mind is like franchising. That's one of the reasons people pursue that is because it's a proven system and something ready to go. But what is it about real estate that really caught you? Was it just watching the HGTV shows? I mean, so basically I never thought I was going to start my own company, let alone multiple companies in the real estate industry. And no, I never thought I wanted to be a real estate professional, but when I saw the opportunity that was ahead of me and yeah, starting with financially, you know, there were so many things that I was going to be able to do when it came to experiences and traveling the world and helping others financially with the income I had just generated. I mean, I was, I'm, I'm not a very private person. I was a Dell for 14 years. I got an MBA and I was only making $87,000 a year. My very first year in real estate, I net $120,000 and that included a $70,000 loss that I took on a property. So when I saw that that opportunity was there, I was like, Oh, wow, this is amazing. But I also realized during that first year, the entire you know journey, oh, this is cool. And I really did enjoy it. And it became my passion. And let's go into the systems piece. And I know that from your journey, it was starting from scratch. So hence the reason you were looking for coaches. And we'll definitely get into what the benefits were there. But what was your first starting point? I mean, even before deciding to get a coach, where did you get your feet wet? So I was living in downtown Chicago at the time and I was brand new. And yeah, and, and from day, really from day one, I was working with my coach, but there's so much to learn, right? I knew nothing. So my coach taught me everything from A to Z. So I knew that, okay, I'm going to start small. So for me, what that meant was I specifically focused on one bedroom, one bath condos in the city. Because at that time in 2014, you you could buy a place for $125,000, put in 50 grand and, you know, still net 15%, which was my goal. And when you focus on condos, it's minimal risk because you don't have to worry about the exterior work, the roof, the windows in most cases. So I was like, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. And I believe my first seven out of those 10 were condos in the city. Is that what you recommend people start with is something like a condo because it's possibly more manageable. I feel like whenever I talk about real estate, people get into analysis paralysis and it just looks too big. So is that kind of what worked for you or is that a recommendation for most people interested in getting into it? So great question. So number one, at that time, there were there was just a ton of opportunity for 
anybody to pick up a condo. So there was so much supply. That's one of the main reasons I focused on it. That's another reason I focused on it. It's not a bad strategy in general, because I've coached investors all over the country. I mean, even all over the world, what I will tell them is regardless of where you live, whether it's urban or rural, whether you're brand new or not, I would start as you're building your team, as you're educating yourself on how this all works, as you're learning how to raise capital for the financing piece, I would just focus on the low to middle income price points. Now, that's going to depend on where you live. In California, middle income home can be a million dollars, right? Whereas in Iowa, middle income home can be $100,000. So, um, but don't worry about that. That's where the whole analysis, paralysis by analysis comes in is don't look at the numbers, just focus on the low to middle income price points. And then, yeah, you want to make sure your numbers make sense. So have some sort of a, I call it a property analysis template, an Excel spreadsheet, basically, a souped up Excel spreadsheet that calculates all your cost variables for you. And I would focus, this is really important, uh, whether you're new or not, on a net ROI of 15%. And then that should help minimize the risk. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the keys. And I'm stating the obvious that, that probably is what prevents people from getting started is not understanding the risk. And I also figure when you go into it, you want to have as much of a buffer for the mistakes you're inevitably going to make. So being able to find a deal that has some room to make those mistakes and still get into that 15% range. Two questions. How does somebody go about finding the deal? Because I imagine once it gets on MLS and the general public, so to speak, already has access to it, it may already be a little bit too late. And then what does it mean to secure capital? And what does some of those avenues look like? When it comes to marketing for leads, yeah, everyone goes to the MLS. So do I. It's a low-hanging fruit. That's why it's very competitive. And that's why the projected profit margins are lower. So you want to do a variety of things. So I always encourage aspiring or active investors to launch direct mail campaigns, develop relationships with wholesalers or other investors in the area. If they find a deal, they can sell it to you. Work with various realtors. They can they can um, launch a agent door knocking campaign. They'll a lot of investor friendly realtors will even manage a direct mail campaign for you and they'll bear the cost because they see the value in working with you. Um, go on to Craigslist, look for for sale by owner, go on to for sale by owner.com. So you want to do a little bit of everything. You want to network. You want to go to various networking events to develop those relationships where people will think of you and they have an opportunity, you know, for you to capitalize on. So don't just limit it limit it to the MLS. And then when it comes to securing the funding, that is something I'm very, very, I don't want to say passionate about, but I feel very strongly about how to structure deals when it comes to financing. Because one of the hardest things that we do as real estate investors, it's it's hard to find a good deal. So once we find a good deal, we don't want to lose on that opportunity because we couldn't structure the financing. So what I'm the mistake that a lot of people do is they try to save a couple of points or they try to save a couple of percent annualized, which is nothing, by working with a bank. We'll try to work with a bank to get a conventional loan because, oh, they're only going to pay 5 or 6%. That's not going to be a competitive offer because you're going to have to wait 30, 45, 60 days to close. There's hundreds of pages of paperwork. Banks will not lend on non-conforming properties if there's not a functional you know, plumbing or kitchen. 
So I always say stay away from banks. And what a lot of people will do is they'll work with hard money lenders, which is great. I love my hard money lenders. Anybody can get a hard money loan. It doesn't matter what your personal finances are. But I won't say zero, very, very few hard money lenders out there are going to give you 100% of what you need. So you still have to come to the table with what they're going to say is skin in the game, right? Your liquidity, um, what are you bringing in the table? It's normally going to be at least 25%. And so a lot of people don't have 25% just sitting in the bank. And so they freak out and the deal falls through. Well, that's where the private money comes into play. So when you know how to raise private money, which means anybody can be a private money lender. It can be a friend or family member. However, that's what most real estate educators teach is go talk to your friends and family. I'm the opposite. I'm going to tell you not to target your friends and family members because there are so many ways you can network to raise capital through other people. It can be your neighbors, it can be the cashier at the grocery store, it can be your Uber driver. But once you learn how to raise private money, then the opportunities are endless. You can say yes to every single opportunity that comes across your desk. I think that's an important distinction across the board because I'll say whenever I hear some of the real estate seminars, like the commercials, it'll say using other people's money. Well, maybe it's just me. I never quite knew what other people's money meant. Does that mean certain kinds of banks and they're an intermediary or what you're saying literally could be friends and family. And to your point, you don't want everybody avoiding you at the holidays because you're going to be hitting them up for more money or whatever the case happens to be. It comes into that networking piece, which of course, we're really going to focus on here shortly. And then being able to secure that for the deals. The other thing you mentioned in what I have heard is the same, that the deals are the hard thing to come by. Once you figure out the capital, there are people out there that have money that are willing to go in on these things. But the deals, especially in today's environment, are a little harder to come by. Talk about that real quick. So you mentioned you started in 2014. And yeah, I imagine at that time, especially in the condos, I'm thinking of Tampa, for example, we went on a vacation right around that time. And I saw some of the for sale for the place that we rented. I'm like, wow, (laughs) this stuff is very available in some of those overbought areas back from 2008. But talk to me a little bit about the current environment where it seems to me that with all of the stimulus and help that's going on, the prices are still very high and it seems like it's hard to find a good deal. I'm constantly getting questions. Is now a good time to invest? There's going to be a recession. Oh my God, what do I do? The election, um, interest rates are going to you know, go up, blah, blah, blah. You guys, who cares? None of that matters. You can always make money in real estate as long as you focus on knowing how to analyze a deal. Some of my closest trusted advisors and coaches and mentors made the bulk of their wealth in 2008 when the economy crashed. So that doesn't matter. My my answer to that is it's always a good time to buy. 365 days a year, it's always a good time to buy. You just have to know what to look for. And I always say we make our money when we buy and we realize our profits when we sell. So as long as we're buying below market value, and yeah, those are harder to find right now, right? But you know, right now, um, supply is very, very low and demand is very, very high. So yeah, the sellers have massive leverage right now, even for distressed properties, but who cares? Make your decision based upon data. Even if you're paying fair market value for a property, once you put in the money for the renovation, what's that going to do to the after repair value? 
So you want to base all of your decision off comps and you don't want those comps coming from Zillow. They have to come from the MLS. That is the one and only system of record. So as long as the data is there and the numbers make sense, then do it, even if it's a million dollars. But follow a system and have a system for yourself. More importantly, have a deal analyzer that is your guiding point when you're trying to make these decisions. I know exactly what you're talking about for Zillow, but I try to make sure in case there are people listening that aren't following along there. Uh, Zillow is a pretty popular real estate site, and I believe they call it the Z estimate or Zestimate. I'm not quite sure what the proper way to say it is, but I know in looking at my own house, it is not anywhere near and sometimes high, sometimes way low, what my property eventually sold for. So yeah, it does seem to be a pretty flawed calculation. Kudos to them for trying, I guess, but that is a very good point to use other resources and make sure that you have that ready to go when you have your tools for analyzing what a deal should be. So we've hit on what I imagine are some of the primary points of getting started. What do you think is the hardest thing that you had to learn and pick up? And then conversely, what is the easiest thing that you sort of were doing naturally? The most difficult thing for me was building my power team. And the reason I say that the process itself is not difficult. Often a lot of us out there will hear and we're told For example, it's very hard to find a good general contractor, which is true. It's very hard to find good contractors. Once you find a good contractor, you want, you know, you don't want to let them go. So for me coming into an industry that I knew nothing about, I wanted to be, I knew that the way I was going to succeed was by building an amazing team of A plus players. So um, if anyone has heard of the book by Jim Collins from Good to Great, what he says, and if you haven't, I would you know, invite you to, to, to check it out. But what he says is always focus on getting the right people on the bus and then worry about shuffling them around and putting them to the right seat. So I wanted to build my power team with A-plus players. And that's hard. It, it took me 18 months to find my perfect realtor, my perfect general contractor, my perfect um, designer and architect. But once you do that, oh my God, you, I mean, I was living the dream. I, I moved out of Chicago. I was living by the ocean in La Jolla, San, you know, La Jolla, California. And, um, I was buying and renovating and selling multi-million dollar homes and I never even stepped foot into those properties. Now, yes, I had been doing it for a year and a half, but it's because I trusted my team. So that was the most difficult thing, but it paid off after a year and a half. The easiest thing for me, which is why I wrote a book about it is, is strategic networking and knowing how to talk to people. And it's because of my ability to get creative and think outside the box that I was able to raise $4.5 million in just year one and then go on to raise well over $16 million in private money over the course of my career. And a lot of people have the fear of the unknown, myself included, which is very, very normal. Like how, you know, I don't have rich friends and family members or I don't know anyone with money or how are they supposed to lend me money or I'm not, I feel bad asking people for money. You're not doing any of that. So once you know what you're doing, then it becomes very, very easy. And so that's why I chose to write the book. And now actually all I do is teach real estate investors how to raise private money 
because it's just an amazing skill set to have. You're speaking my language at this point as far as the networking piece. I say on the show and otherwise that I'm not a salesperson. It's uncomfortable to me. To your point, I don't like directly asking people for money. But if you frame it up in the world of networking, which I am a huge proponent of in your day job, in your side hustles, if you have them in real estate, like you're talking about. And with that, part of networking is telling people what you're doing. And I feel like that becomes the sale. You want to make sure people know what's going on where you are in the journey, what you need, which hopefully is a natural progression and whatever relationship building and conversations that you're having. So is that kind of how you feel networking fits into that overall scope or tell me about that? There are a lot of people out there who don't even know that they can be a private money lender. They don't even know that they're in a position to be a lender. So it's our job as the real estate professional to educate them. And so that's what we're doing during coffee talks. And in today's economy, FaceTime, Zoom session, now is an even easier time to network and build rapport with prospective private money lenders from the comfort of your own home. You don't have to meet these people in person. But yeah, it's, it's, I have a framework that I created. It's called my FACT framework. And that's the basis for success when it comes to raising private money. It starts with, so the F in FACT is building your foundation. That starts with your mindset. So you got to understand. So here's a quote I often share with my students is, you're not asking for anything. You're presenting others with an opportunity to invest. And if you don't see it that way, then you're not going to have the confidence to get out there and raise the capital. So we want to make sure we've got the right mindset going. We want to make sure we built your, you know, your foundation. You know how you're going to get out there and talk to people. The A is taking action. Okay, so we built our foundation. We've got the right mindset. Now we're going to start to create our list of prospective private money lenders. And yeah, these are people that you're never you may not have talked to in a while, but there's a way you're going to approach them. And then step three, the C is credibility. We got to create all your credibility pieces. So what are you going to tell them? If you have experience, there's one way you'll approach them. If you don't have experience, it's okay. There's another way you'll approach them. So we want to get all your credibility pieces in place. So that step four, the T, the transactions start to follow. So that's a very high level overview. But as long as you follow this fact framework and you actually take action, anybody can raise private money. I don't know if it's unique to real estate, but is nice that would be part of these conversations is you're presumably talking about a win-win for the prospective investors. Like, let's pick on annuities for a second for people that are not into annuities. And I am one of those people. You get very paranoid about the people trying to sell them because they don't have the best return compared to other options. And oh, by the way, a guy that's selling it to you will get a commission from that. And if you really dig into it, they're making more money on the commission than you would in that investment. Whereas with what you're talking about, hopefully it's all win-win, correct? You want the best deal. You want to have the team, et cetera, et cetera. And you're taking your portion for doing the work. And of course, they're winning when you have a good deal go through and the process is what you intend it to be. As we get out there and have our coffee talks and educate them on who we are and what we're doing and what's in it for them and what's in it for us, we want to be able to explain to them, preferably through like a private money presentation that you've created. 
hey, most people today aren't earning double-digit returns in their retirement accounts. They're not earning double-digit returns in the stock market. They are definitely not earning double-digit returns when they just park their money at the bank. Nothing irritates me more than walking into a bank with a big sign in the lobby with balloons dangling off of it that's like, give us all your money. We'll pay you 0.25%. I want to go there and say, I will give you 12% if you park your money with me, and I will secure, insure, and protect your investment. So... It's just educating them, right? By investing with us as real estate investors, they get a recorded mortgage so so we can't sell the property without them signing off on it. They get added as a beneficiary lost pay to our builder's risk insurance policy. They get a promissory note. So these are all massive wins. They're getting double-digit returns. I offer my private money lenders a 12% annualized return. More than likely, they're not getting any of these things in the stock market or the bank or a retirement account. Some sure... But to your point, we want to educate them on the benefits to them. I have to ask, going back to the environment right now, where it seems like the deals are a bit harder to come by, are you still able to offer the 12% return? Yeah, I do. Because look, whether it's 12% or 10%, it doesn't matter. I can get 10% now. I can get away with 10%, but why? 2% annualized is nothing. And 12 is just a nice round juicy number where your investors will continue to reinvest and reinvest and reinvest. It doesn't, it's going to make a difference of like a few hundred dollars in the deal. So if I ever have the ability, you know, if I've got a lender that's negotiating, I've got a way that I approach that, but, um, I'd rather give up an extra percent annualized than a point because a point weighs more on the deal. So again, this is why you want to have some sort of a deal analyzer, a spreadsheet, so you can see how those numbers fluctuate. Yeah. Well, and the reason I mentioned that is in the few conversations I've had in this space, it seems like the percentages I've heard are not much more competitive than what the stock market has been. So 12% actually sounds really good just based on the very few conversations I have heard. But again, to your point, especially when it's the banks and savings accounts there, we spend a lot of time on the show and I'm a big Dave Ramsey guy. So yes, have your financial house in order. But after that, please don't just leave all of your money in a savings account. And also have conversations like what we're having right now for myself, who's just starting to dabble in this world, get educated, figure out where your money can go, but don't just get scared off by your perceived risk because especially the bank accounts, that's going to be a problem. So I definitely advocate for people doing their homework and understanding what options they have out there and available to them. Let me back up to one other question around what comes naturally and what doesn't. I can't have this question and not call the podcast Suburban Folk, right? So if I am the standard suburbanite or let's say homeowner, is there a certain skill set that I'm probably already bringing to the table that I could also build off of? Yeah, absolutely. And so this is a lot of what I talk about with my students when it comes to mindset. So for those of you out there who may be interested in, you know, getting into real estate and you're already a homeowner, great. You know, don't, as you get out there and network and talk to people, the first thing that we're inclined to say is, oh, I'm brand new to the industry. I don't have any experience. No, you're not. You already own your primary residence. You've already worked with a realtor. Is it your 
a plus player realtor? Maybe not, but you do have experience. Nobody needs to know that the experience you have is with your primary residence. They only know what you tell them. Now I'm not saying lie, but you don't have to disclose all the details, right? So as you're out there networking and talking to people, whether it's a realtor, contractor, or whomever, if you're already a homeowner, then you can say, yeah, you know, I've I dabbled in real estate with one property. I'm just trying to figure out if this is a good fit for me. And you can start to leverage on the realtor that you worked with to, you know, close on your home. And if you've even done any minor renovations, if you painted a bathroom, if you put up new light fixtures there, you technically have experience with one property. And so that can be one project that goes into what I call is your credibility piece, your credibility packet. You can show before and after photos. If you've, um, I used to, before I got into this, I helped my sister um, redesign her bathroom. It was a hobby of mine, but later I was like, Ooh, I actually had a say in what she did. So I shared before and after photos in my credibility packets because technically I was involved in it. Now I didn't say that I did the work, but you know, this is a part of my experience. So there's so much you can leverage from if you try to really just dig deep and, and just map it all out. I have to tell one personal story that came to mind when you're talking about dealing with realtors in our last home search, we were pretty much at the end of the process for buying a property. And it was a little bit above what we wanted to spend. We came in with a low offer. We'd actually been eyeing this house that was on the market for over a year, I'm pretty sure. And we thought it would never be available when we were ready to buy so it was a bit of a stretch for us. We said, here's what we're willing to put out there. We knew it had been on the market for quite some time. So you would assume they would have had a little bit of wiggle room. And we actually walked from this property, I believe twice, and their realtor came back begging us to come back to the table. So we did, we found a middle ground and the final straw was everything is signed. And then they said, we're not going to pay for anything that you find in the walkthrough. Now, I'm sure you can make an argument whether or not that was reasonable or not. But my punchline to this is our realtor said that the sellers felt like we were being bullies. <laughs> and I'm like, are you kidding me? It's your realtor that's coming back and begging us to stay into the process. So we did finally walk and said, this is clearly not good for either side. My point in that as well is I know for me, I wanted to be in the middle of the conversations and the deals itself. So having to rely on the realtors and doing all that was actually very frustrating for me. So I think for people that are not control freaks, that's not the right term, but want to be more in the forefront of a process like that. That's absolutely an experience I probably could use to say, yes, here's how I go about something being on the market and what I think it's worth. If that's a part of the process you enjoy, then you should do it. Don't outsource that. I don't like to do any of it. I like to outsource everything. But whether you outsource or not, you still want to understand what's happening, right? So you're going to learn to speak the language, understand how the data is being captured anyways. But I always tell my students like, hey, if you want to be the, you know, the technician in that case, because you enjoy it, do it. But I want to make sure that you have the opportunity to be the technician. You're not doing it because you have to be the technician. 
That's a great distinction. And admittedly, it's something that I continue to learn. Heck, even with the podcast, <laughs> like there are certain aspects of getting a show produced that some I like, some I don't. I probably should spend a little more money to offload some of those things. So I feel like for, well, control freaks, that's something you struggle with all the time. But you're right on, especially with something like this. If it's something you're passionate about, okay, do it. But don't be the bottleneck in your process because that's probably going to cost you a lot of time and money, I would imagine. Let's move over to your book. So again, the theme of networking and whether that's building your team, finding deals and in capital, all of those different things. Talk about what the inspiration was for you writing your book and then what should people be expecting to get out of that? It was just such a crazy but cool experience because, and it took me a long time to admit this in front of people, but I hate reading. I do not like reading. Reading has never been a strength of mine. Now I like to learn. I learn in other ways, going to conferences or, you know, watching a documentary. So for me to think that I was going to be a best-selling published, you know, author is just crazy. And if you read my book, I actually had massive insecurities insecurities about it. It took me two years to actually publish it because I write the way I speak. It's not I'm not a professional author. But the feedback I actually got was amazing, was very relatable from what I understand. So what inspired me to write it actually, it was my students. I had been coaching investors all over the country for almost it was either five or six years. And they all kept saying, oh my God, that was such a good point. Or you should share your story. Or, you know, why don't you write a book? And I'm like, no, no, no. And then finally, I actually, actually, um, what you'll learn about me is I'm very direct. I don't dilly dally. I don't sugarcoat. I'm going to give you the good, the bad, and the in between. So I woke up one morning and I was doing a bunch of amazing things in my real estate business. But because I chose to surround myself with a bunch of like high performing entrepreneurs and friends, I woke up thinking, Oh my God, Amy, you're such a loser. You're not doing anything. You're living by the beach, you know, in La Jolla, California. What are you doing with your life? But really I'm managing an $11 million business in downtown Chicago. I'm a keynote speaker. I've been on HGTV. I'm doing all these amazing things, but because I've been able to automate it, I felt like I wasn't working. And I looked around in my circle and I said to myself, everyone has published at least one book. Like you need to write a book. So even though I had all this amazing feedback coming from my students, the only reason I initially chose to write the book was because I'm very competitive and I'm like, I have to write a book too. Well, then as I started to write it and interview my students, I actually thankfully enjoyed the process. So again, I did it for all the wrong reasons. Um, In the back of my mind, my students put the idea in my head. And of course, now it was cool. I got to publish it before I turned 40 and people have received a lot of value out of it. As a result of that um, and learning to actually enjoy the process, I am going to write a second one, which I never thought I would say. So that's going to be more about raising capital. The first one was more here's how I networked to build my team and get on TV and raise capital, but it doesn't really share like systems or strategies, which I'll get into a little bit in my next book. Very cool. And of course we focus mostly on real estate. Do you feel like the networking piece can apply to other areas or careers? The strategies I teach can apply to anyone in any industry, can apply to your personal life, your professional life. None of that matters. Whether you're an introvert or extrovert, it applies to both. 
because if you're if you're an extrovert and you're and you're already you know comfortable networking, great. We'll look at the parts where I teach you how to get creative and think outside the box. And if you're an introvert, then great. Use these scripts that I give you to open up the door at networking events or understand what type of networking events you even want to attend. So I really cover a broad spectrum. I actually have yet to come across any other educator out there who teaches the same networking strategies that I teach. They really are my own that I've developed and created. Before I let you go, I have to ask the fun question. Tell us about the behind the scenes of an HGTV type of show. What what would people be surprised to know? Yeah, it was pretty cool, actually, that I had the opportunity, which I still can't believe, to film a four-part series with them. That was never the plan. It was just to do one episode. And then we actually, right through networking, right, we just hit it off. And it, it's it was great. They ended up um, following documenting my journey as I transitioned out of corporate America into entrepreneurship and real estate. They showed a couple of my properties, the before, during, and after of the construction. But what a lot of people feel is that most of it is scripted. And actually, it wasn't. I would say about 75% of it was not scripted. So that was pretty cool to just be able to make it my own and not and be able to ad lib a little bit on set. Anything in the final product that you're like, this isn't how it happened. I, I feel like sometimes you hear those stories. Okay, there's one part where the editors um, really played up. I, I guess I, I would I used to say, let's blow out this wall. I would say it a lot. I didn't realize I was saying it a lot. So when they were editing the show, they kept putting that in there. So I became known as like the annoying girl who wants to blow out every wall, started trending on Twitter. And I, I just, I thought it was crazy. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm trending on Twitter, but it was also kind of embarrassing. So if you watch the episode, which you can check out on my website, you'll see that I apparently say that a lot, but that, that was it. On a very small scale, I can relate a little bit again with a podcast and you're listening to yourself. It's like, why do I say this thing over and over again? You try to get better and try to get better, but uh, I can relate at least a little bit. Well, Amy, before I do let you go, do you want to go ahead and give folks your contact information where they can find you on social media, any promotions or events uh, related to your coaching and your book? Definitely. I I manage all my social media and um, I've actually been doing a really good job lately of sharing some tips and tricks on Instagram. So I would say connect with me on Instagram. Um, it's just Amy Majuri. And um, actually from Instagram, you can link to buy my book if you would like on Amazon. Earlier today, I talked about my fact framework. Um, next week on Thursday, I'm going to be doing a live, a free live webinar. If anybody, you know, I'm pr- probably going to be doing it every Thursday wants to register. You can do that from my Instagram page and I'll go into detail on my fact framework. So it's pretty cool. But if you just connect with me on Instagram, then we'll be able to stay in touch. And of course, I'll put your information into the show notes so people can easily find you. I appreciate you being on the show and in the spirit of networking, we'll be in touch. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was great chatting with you. And yeah, we'll talk soon. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or all other major podcasting applications to be notified of our latest episode. You can also join our conversation at suburbanfolk.com or any social media site, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle Suburban Folk. Thanks for listening.